this week we continue our sermon series on looking for the light. And we're going to explore this, continue to explore this metaphor of Jesus who said, claimed he was the light of the world. And so what does this mean for Jesus to be the light in the midst of our darkness? Last week we established that our default is definitely a world of darkness, and we even reflected on the possibility that we might even prefer the dark uh, because we're scared of the light and what it might reveal in us. And so today we continue to look at the light in our lives. Uh, How do we look for this light? What kind of light? What is that light that we are longing for? And explore the belief that this one true light is Jesus. So we're going to look closely at a familiar Advent scripture passage this morning. It comes from the prophet Isaiah chapter nine, uh, some selected verses. It was uh, a prophecy made famous by Handel's Messiah. So there should be some familiar, familiar words here to you. Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch-dark land, light has dawned. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness, now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. This is God's word for all of God's people. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us in the waiting and the watching and the hoping and the longing, the sorrow, the sighing and the rejoicing. Show us your light in these dark Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. So has anyone here ever gone to one of those restaurants where um, it's all in the dark? Where you eat and it's all in the dark. Anybody ever done it? Okay. So Greg and I haven't done this either, but I've had a couple of friends who have, and uh, one person described it in detail, and he talked about how, um, so what is this uh, no-sight dining? You go and you're either blindfolded or the dining room is in pitch black, and so you experience the whole meal without being able to see. And so John Bohannon said that he described it, that when they got there, he had to put his hand on the waiter's shoulder, and then his uh, dining companion put her hand on his shoulder, and the waiter led them into to their seats because it was pitch black. Now, their waiter did not have any problem with this because he was actually blind. And so for him, this was not a problem, and sometimes the waiters in these restaurants are blind because they can navigate this. So uh, he said as he sat down, it was incredibly unnerving because he waved his hand in front of his face and he could not see his hand at all. It was that dark. And he was beginning to get a little bit anxious. And in this particular setting, if you need to use the restroom, you have to ask a waiter to lead you to the restroom where they have a candle burning in the restroom. And he was about ready to ask for that, not because he needed to use the restroom, but because he so desperately wanted to just see something. 
But he got his nerves back under control, and finally the meal came. And then he said that was a whole nother adventure, trying to figure out how to use a fork when you can't see it. And so eventually they got through the meal and uh, the waiter then led he and his um, companion back out of the restaurant and back into the light. So the pluses and minuses, whether you like this experience or not, of, of dining in the dark, one thing is for certain, that if you're going to choose being in the dark, then your best guide is blind, one who is blind. Now, there's some truth to that when we think about it. So, in a situation of darkness, one who can navigate that best is one who has lived in uh, darkness, lived without light. And that would be someone that is blind. But when we choose to navigate in the darkness, we are limiting ourselves and the broad range of possibilities. And that's one thing to do for a night out on the town. And it's a completely whole other thing when we choose to live a lifetime that way. Light. Did you know that light appears in the New Revised Standard Version 335 times? So it's a popular biblical concept in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it has a multifaceted range of meanings as it is used to talk about creation and glory righteousness, kingdoms, God's presence, and that which is good. In contrast, biblically speaking, darkness appears 223 times, and it is used not just to talk about merely the absence of light, but it is also used to refer to ignorance as well as evil. Now, um, Scripture teaches us over and over that we are to resist darkness, but it also reminds us that we aren't capable of actually defeating darkness on our own. Resist it, yes. Defeat it, no. Only Jesus can do that. So let's look at our text this morning to understand more fully why that is. So these verses from Isaiah make up what is called an oracle or a public poem that was spoken either at the coronation of a king, but more likely it was actually to celebrate the birth of a new crown prince, the, hence the language about a child being born. And once again, we have this use of light and darkness and this hope, this hope that is expressed that this child, this child will make a difference. Notice how when the text talks about the light coming into the world, it was not described as a light that was formed from the world within, but instead it was a light that came and dawned onto the world um, from another source. And our devotion, uh, one of our devotions this past week made that point and was a, a lovely setup for this morning. That light is a source from somewhere beyond this world and in fact, it is Jesus. It's Jesus that ultimately has brought this light into our world. So today, we make the case that Jesus is the light that we're looking for, that Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills this prophecy, not any of the kings of Israel or of Judah. This child will bring light into our dark world. And when this particular light arrives, we are seen and we will see. And that's both scary and comforting at the same time. 
For me, I find this comforting to think about Jesus as this powerful light that was sent from God that changes everything. We know that God created first, uh, the light first. When we look at the creation story, that was the first thing God did was separate the light and the dark. It was that important. Jesus was present and instrumental in that um, act of creation from the very beginning. But we also know that Jesus continues that path of creation and becomes instrumental in our salvation as well. Jesus is the continuity between creation and salvation. It's Jesus that brings God's light to us. So Isaiah describes this special light that Jesus will one day claim. When this child is born, this child has authority. Y'all, this birth is not like any other birth. And the description given to what this child will become for the people is powerful. Ultimately, it names four different needs that people might identify um, in their Messiah or in their Savior. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Maybe, maybe you are needing guidance in your life. Wonderful Counselor. Maybe you need powerful strength and force to anchor your unstable life. Mighty God. Maybe what you're yearning for is someone to offer care and support that is consistent and dependable. Eternal Father. Or maybe your life is so chaotic or even violent that you long for peace and calm and safety. You long for the Prince of Peace. That's not all this prophecy of Jesus as the light offers. It goes on then to describe what happens when Jesus is the light. Isaiah says that this light will bring vast authority and endless peace with it, and that there will be justice and righteousness now and forever. So when we think about these descriptions, we start to say, hmm, but Jesus entered into this world, and these things have not been brought about and permanently established. And so we must remind ourselves that we um, live in this in-between time, that while Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection were the starting point to bring these to pass, it was not the ending point. We are in the already but not yet season where we are waiting for Jesus to return and at that point in time, that's when Jesus will ultimately and permanently um, make all of these things to be established. But make no mistake about it, they have begun. So Jesus himself claimed the beginning of this fulfillment in his very first recorded sermon. I mean, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes actually another chapter of Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, this is how Jesus will and does bring light into our dark world. This is how Jesus begins to establish justice and righteousness. This is how Jesus begins to bring about peace. 
And before we look at that list and think, mm, those are categories for other people, other people that don't describe us, look carefully because we too are people in need that these categories can also describe for us as well. And when we see that, when we recognize that, we begin to get Jesus. And these are the hints, by the way, for us to continue the work Jesus began until he comes again. This is how we can look for Jesus' light, to begin to live into that light. These are the ways that we can embrace that God broke into our world through Jesus in order to bring us a light to truly guide our way, to truly overcome the darkness. St. Augustine explains it this way, and I love it. See, if you can follow the logic, I'm sure you can, because it's powerful the way he frames this. God became a man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. And so the man Christ Jesus became the mediator of God and human beings. God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. This is Augustine's way of saying, Jesus is the light that leads us into full relationship with God. Jesus is the light that darkness will never overcome. Jesus is the light that will never prove false or faulty. Jesus is the light that shines on us with grace and with glory. And Isaiah chapter 9 foretold this truth. So a few days ago, Greg and I um, watched part of uh, one of the Lord of the Rings trilogy on TV. And if Ben Fitzgerald were in this room, he would just be so excited right now because he loves Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a powerful scene, though, uh, with King Aragorn, Aragorn in Tolkien's third book of the trilogy, The Return of the King, that imitates part of this prophecy of the, the power of naming the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the emotional power from Isaiah 9 is not only with those messianic titles, but it's their cumulative effect. In other words, they are more powerful because of the sum total, spoken together or sung, as they are in the oratorio from uh, Handel's Messiah. They convey such a sense of majesty that can't be captured by using just one title, no matter how lofty and powerful that one title would be. So Tolkien's The Return of the King has a scene where, um, uh, that illustrates this, where Aragorn, uh, the rightful king of the West, has been laboring in obscurity. He has given up all of the kingly comforts that he would have been rightfully um, his. And he has served his subjects. He has been fighting battles for them. He has repeatedly risked his life for them. But at last, he finally prevails over the forces of the Dark Lord and now is poised to enter the city where he will rule at last. So when Aragorn enters the fortified city of Mina Tirith um, for the first time as the king, the city's steward proclaims the following um, and basically lists Aragorn's for, uh, formal um, royal pedigree for all the citizens to hear. Here is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, chieftain of the Dunedain of Arnor, captain of the host of the West, 
bearer of the star of the north, wielder of the sword reforged, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, the elf stone, Elisar of the line of Valandil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor, shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there? Okay, Ben could translate all of that for you, but trust me when I say it's really impressive. But you know what? There was another king who long labored in obscurity, underheralded, humbly serving the people over whom he had every right to reign, laying down his life for them. And today, he claims the throne of our lives. Here is Jesus the Christ, the second Adam, the bright and morning star, the first and the last, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, mighty second person of the Trinity, son of David, son of man, Word of God incarnate, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Shall he enter our hearts, our church, and dwell there? I pray that the answer to that question is a wholehearted yes. May we recognize that this is the light we are looking for. This is the one to follow. This is the king who will make a difference. This is the one who will overcome the darkness forever. Amen and amen.